This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, executive editor with a remote edition of the podcast. My guest today is Eric Gibson. Eric is arts and review editor of the Wall Street Journal, a contributor to our pages since 1984, the author of the new book, The Necessity of Sculpture, and I should mention a returning voice to the podcast. Eric, welcome back. Thank you very much, James. Good to be here. We last spoke here a year and a half ago on the sculptor Alberto Giacometti, and what a year and a half it has been. Due to the pandemic, cultural venues have shuttered, only temporarily, we hope, across the globe. Losses are already well into the billions of dollars as museums, theaters, and concert halls have gone dark. On top of that, a new wave of iconoclasm has swept the culture. Civic unrest challenges our institutions and the art in their trust like never before. Beyond Confederate generals, statues of presidents and prime ministers are now under threat. Even abolitionist memorials have been defaced. Eric, I hate to use this word, but as an expert on sculpture, did you ever suppose sculpture would be so relevant? Well, that's... That's a very interesting <laughs> word to use, James. Relevant. Um, I think you know. In, I, the short answer is no. Um, and and obviously, what we're seeing in terms of the the targeting of these monuments is is deeply uh, disheartening. Um, but in a way, is to be expected because uh, although in the general art conversation, painting gets tends to get talked about more than sculpture. In situations like this, monuments, by virtue of their very visibility, uh, become uh, easily become flashpoints. And sadly, um, in the most uh, kind of superficial uh, and incomprehending way, you mentioned um, just that abolitionist monuments have been targeted. I was greatly chagrined to read a couple of weeks ago that in the unrest in Boston uh, uh, following the the uh, shooting in Minneapolis, um, Augustus St. Gordon's Robert Gould Shaw Memorial in Boston had been spray painted. And this is, if there's a single monument in this country that is about racial reconciliation, it is this. And yet, simply because it was a monument and, I suppose, an old-looking statue. It was considered fair game along with the rest of them. Oh, that's so disheartening. I didn't even hear that. And I know it's a monument that's dear to you. You've written about it uh, at length. And, um, I mean, these vandals are not uh, necessarily the most um, learned art critics, I suppose. No, and, 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 well, that's it. And and in a way... They probably wouldn't care even if they were because the nature of a mob is the blood is up. And uh, in those situations, um, fine aesthetic distinctions tend uh, not to get made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I want to go back to this topic, but I first want to ask about a formative memory you describe in The Necessity of Sculpture. And this is from your introduction uh, to quote, growing up. I always found our family museum visits difficult. The paintings bored me. 
but I particularly disliked the sculpture. So many brown and white lumps strategically positioned, or so it seemed at the time, to slow my path to the exit. And modern art was simply a joke. Then, in 1968, my mother took me to the Henry Moore retrospective that the Tate Gallery, as it was then, had organized to commemorate his 70th birthday. It proved to be the proverbial coup de foudre. I entered the museum, a 15-year-old Philistine, and left some time later an ardent modernist, moreover one for whom sculpture would become the abiding passion. Eric, I love this passage because um, it reminds me of my own formative experience with Henry Moore. I grew up across the street from Lincoln Center. I spent many afternoons running around the reflecting pool in front of the Vivian Beaumont Theater. And at the center of this pool is, of course, Henry Moore's reclining figure of 1965. The sculpture, frankly, terrified me as it emerges hope-like from its dark depths. I must say, it still unnerves me. For many years, I thought I didn't get it, but I now think I got it right from the beginning. What is it about Moore that elicits such a response? I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I think, I think the word often used about Moore, and especially those public pieces, is monumentality. And I think, I think what that is referring to is they have an extraordinarily full and dramatic presence. And I think that's, that's what, uh, what, what people respond to. Um, the exhibition that I went to had, being a retrospective, had you know, those large works, but also the smaller, earlier ones. And I don't remember, it was so long ago, you know, which, if there was a particular one of those that stood out. But it was just the, it was the, the, the body of work as a whole. And, um, it's really looking back, it's really extraordinary to me that something like this happened because it was absolutely a defining moment. I mean, I used to dread our visits to museums and, uh, and then to have this experience that not only changed my opinion, but, but so profoundly shaped my life, um, was, is, is really extraordinary. That's amazing. Um, and it's amazing you remember it so vividly as the, the defining moment for you. Yeah, yeah, no, it's unforgettable. When I'm in London and I go, you know, uh, to the, uh, take Britain as it now, um, I always sort of pause on the steps before going in and just reflect back on that moment. And I have a kind of, well, this is where it all began moment of, uh, of reflection. So yeah, it's, it is remarkable. And it could be with more that it's, it's, it's not, um, realistic. It's not fully abstract. It's kind of between. And so you're trying to formulate kind of what it is, but you can't quite make it out. There's a mystery about it. I, I think that's it. I think, but I also think that's the point of entry is that it isn't fully abstract. So there's enough in it that is recognizable. You, you can see it's a figure. Um, so that that's your way in. And then you sort of work out from there and understand the distortions he's making that, that turn it into an abstract language. And, the, and then of course, the other sort of familiar point of entry is that a lot of his figures, um, that one at Lincoln Center uh, very, very consciously evoked forms of nature, and that too is something very familiar to all of us, and therefore that's another point of entry 
to this work. So I think I think that probably is what helped me and probably you too um, sort of connect with him is that it's not it wasn't as if I was looking at something totally abstract and inaccessible that there were familiar parts to it as well as unfamiliar parts and the familiar parts allowed me to uh, to to make my way to and come to understand the unfamiliar ones. Well, here's another quote. Pourquoi la sculpture est any use? Why sculpture is boring? And mm. that's how Baudelaire titled his famous essay in 1846. And once upon a time, even you thought that so many brown and white lumps merely slowed your path to the exit. Why might the plastic arts be considered boring, especially in relation to painting? Well, the the British critic Herbert Reed, who was had been a great champion of Moore's, in in one of his books or essays, said something that, that I've never forgotten. He said, "Sculpture is the most difficult art to appreciate," and and I think probably the reason is that that with painting, um, you you're given a, a picture, an illusion, and in many cases a facsimile of the world you're familiar with, um, you know, the famous analogy of Renaissance painting to looking through a window. And so it's, it, it's, all, it's, it's already much more familiar to you. Sculpture, first of all, it's in your own space, and that can sometimes be very disconcerting to people. Um, depending on the time period and the artist, it can be something that you need to walk around, uh, all the way around in order to fully appreciate. Um, and so I, I think there's a less intuitive response to it on the part of many people than there is during the painting. And, you know, there's that famous line, which I also quote in the preface, uh, by the abstract expressionist painter Ad Reinhardt, who said, uh, sculpture is what you hit when you back up to look at a painting. And I think that is, that is uh, many people's attitudes towards sculpture is it's this thing that's in the way that you don't really quite understand and anyway you'd rather be looking at something two-dimensional. Well, and you even, that's even your initial response, right? It was, it was something on your way you bump into on your way to the exit. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. And it's, and painting is a window. It's something out there. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't expect as much out of us that we have to move around it. Right. Exactly. And, and, and I think the, another factor is that sculpture is the, our ability to perceive and fully understand a work of sculpture is very dependent on how well it is displayed. And very often, I mean, even now, um, uh, sculpture is not always displayed optimally. Um, you know, with, with a lighting, a painting is a fairly straightforward affair. You have to make sure it's even, that there's no glare. So, Paintings from one period to another can pretty much be lit the same way. Um, with with sculpture, it's a totally different matter because the different materials, whether they're bronze or marble or uh, rusted metal, they, they take light in different ways, and it's light that reveals the form. And if if the light is too bright, it'll create these these um, 
reflections that make it hard to perceive the form properly. Uh, sometimes it's a, it's a, it, there are other factors. Um, so I think that's, that's another issue you're dealing with that it's, it, unless sculpture is displayed well, uh, it's, it, people are not going to be able to react to it as they should. Well, I'm, I'm always impressed when, whenever you write for New Criterion and you not only talk about the sculpture, but how it's been displayed, how the history of its display and how that might have changed, for example, on uh, Brancusi at MoMA. Yes, well, that, that was a fascinating case. That was um, about a year before MoMA uh, closed to do the final touches on its, on its renovation. They put all their Brancusis in a gallery um, just allowing them to be experienced in the full round. And this was a radical departure for MoMA because in the preceding decades, they had would always display have displayed a half a dozen or so on a platform, one of whose sides was backed against a wall. So you had this rather theatrical display. You could only see them from three sides. And rather than perceiving them individually, you always registered them as a group. And there was a reason for this. I think they were trying to evoke the, ex- <laughs> the experience of Brad Cousy's studio, which he really turned into not so much a workspace, but an ideal exhibiting space for, for the display of his sculpture. But it meant that um, you lost this crucial element. And as I wrote for you in my piece, seeing them in, in this new display where they were separated out, you could walk around them, take it each one individually, you know, I've been looking at this work for 30 or 40 years, and in many cases, I felt I was seeing it for the first time. Mm. I want to ask about materials now. Your, your new book takes in the history of sculpture chronologically. You write about right. sculpture made of stone, wood, clay, metal, and, and, and more. On Bernini, you write how marble's obduracy made form hard won. By contrast, Clay's malleability allowed it to spring from his hands almost at the speed of thought. On Hellenistic bronzes, you write, bronze has greater tensile strength than stone, meaning the top-heavy human form can be shown in more naturalistic and dynamic poses. When most of us look at sculpture, we first look and maybe only look at form. But how do materials interact with form? Well, um, <laughs> there's a whole book you could do on that, probably. Um, it's uh, your materials determine what you can do. Um, you know, as I said, of bronze, it has greater tensile strength, so you can you can have an arm sticking out without worrying about it being snapped off. Um, you can you can you can uh, do things in bronze that you can't do in stone because stone is is much more easily breakable. It's heavier, and so s- sculptors have had to be clever uh, over the years about how they how they uh, realize their ideas with the materials available to them. In in your current issue, in the June issue of the New Criterion, I have this review of a new book on Bernini and and um, in the review I talk the, the 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 author talks about Bernini's David which famously shows the figure of David leaning forward having just flung the stone and he's a cantilevered 
figure. He's leaning way, way out. And, and this is in stone. And I, I say in, in the review that he's able to do this because wrapping his figure is a heavy swath of drapery, which in turn is connected to the the piece of armor on the ground beneath uh, David's feet, between his legs. And so the lower part of David's waist, the, the, the swath of material, and the, suit, the part of the suit of armor, between them form a, ver- a, a vertical column of stone, which supports this leaning figure, allowing Bernini to push it out as far into space as he does. Without it, that figure might snap off at the ankles. The genius of the sculpture is that you don't notice this immediately. You are so caught up in the drama unfolding before you, in Bernini's audacity in in carving this leaning, twisting, lunging figure out of stone. But you don't notice how he gets away with it. As I say in the piece, we're so... We're so mesmerized by his art that we miss his artifice. And that's, that's, that's the battle sculptors are constantly fighting. They is how to, uh, realize their art, uh, by means of the artifice that they need to given the materials they're using. And so would you say the materials of, of sculpture are there to transform, to overcome, stiffness to soften, weight to, to lift? Well, I think, I, I think sculptors decide what materials they want to work in or what materials are available. And then they go from there. Um, and they, they adapt as necessary. Um, I don't think, I, I, I don't think they would want to be driven by the materials you know they they choose the materials they want to work in um david smith wanted to work in steel and he made that material work for him bernini made that material work for him when he was uh working on the david and and his other sculptures but um equally they are they are working within the laws of nature. Certain materials will do certain things that others can't, and that's always a, a deciding factor. Well, sometimes you have, in the case of Michelangelo's Non Finito, you say it asserts the materiality of the block, but other times with, like, the Carpo, you're just amazed how the fingers can press into stone and look like flesh. Right, right. And, or, you know, you have someone like Picasso who, I mean, I think as a sculptor, um, this really was a case of someone deciding, I want this sculpture out of this. And he was just going to make it work. He had (laughs) no, uh, he, you know, he, he had no concern for materials in the sense of, of, uh, willing to be limited by them. You know, if you look at those, those early wooden cubist constructions, they are so badly put together, some of them. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the nails are, the hold the pieces together are sticking out the back. Uh, but it didn't matter to him. He was just going to make this thing. One of his, one of his, uh, most famous later sculptures, it's the man, 
holding the sheep, um, it was modeled in plaster or clay and then cast into bronze. And and he had to completely redo it at one point because the figure is holding this this animal um, in front of its arms in front of his chest. And he hadn't built the armature correctly. He probably couldn't have cared less about the armature. So he has this huge mound of clay or plaster on the front. And the laws of physics took over. It just fell off. So he had to he had to redo it again. He didn't care. He was just going to he was going to make make that sculpture come hell or high water. Well, I just say that Picasso's sculpture show at MoMA was a revelation for me. I came away thinking that Picasso maybe he actually was a sculptor who painted rather than a painter who sculpted. Well, I mean this is uh, this is this is a very reasonable conclusion to come to. I mean the the revelation of his sculpture when it was first seen in 1966 in any quantity, also at MoMA, um, forced people to to revise their assessment of him in exactly that way. And in fact, our magazine's founder and mutual mentor, Hilton Kramer, told me a very amusing story that when he was at the New York Times, the day Picasso died, he got a call from one of the network news channel, CBS, NBC, or something. Um, they were going to do a segment that night on Picasso. They wanted Hilton to comment, and they did a pre-interview, sort of, what are your thoughts, and about, as they said, the greatest painter of the 20th century. And Hilton said, well, I actually think Matisse was the greatest painter of the 20th century. Picasso was the greatest sculptor of the 20th century. And there was this awkward silence at the other end of the phone, and the booker said, thank you, we'll, we'll get back to you. And he never heard back from them again. What a great story. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to tell the story also of Picasso, where a fact checker called up Hilton, and Hilton was writing about Picasso's cubism. And the, and the fact checker said, you mentioned cubism, but I see no reference of Picasso living in Cuba. Oh, I'd never heard that one. That's, <laughs> that's terrific. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, turning to modern art, um, you write that Brancusi's line is like a lasso. As much as anything, its purpose is to restrain. Now, many people have a difficult time with abstract sculpture, perhaps even more so than with abstract painting. What does it mean, they might say? You write so enthusiastically about realistic sculpture. How do you then approach sculptural abstraction? Really on a, on a case by case basis. I mean, Brancusi is a challenge because the works are ravishingly beautiful. They are, they are made in such a fascinating way, but, uh, critic after critic has recognized that they are almost mute in terms of, uh, you know, what, what do they mean? What what is he telling us here? They're very they're very hermetic. Um, whereas something like uh, I mean, at any Picasso sculpture or a Henry Moore or uh, another artist I discuss in the book, Julio Gonzalez, who uh, who was the person who taught Picasso how to weld and and was really the co pioneer of constructed sculpture um one of the one of the works i discuss in my essay there is a woman holding a mirror which is a which is an open work metal vertical sculpture ab- totally abstract of a of a woman 
you know, admiring herself in a hand mirror. And um, it's completely abstract, yet it's completely readable as a human figure, in many ways a very coquettish one. Um, so it's you just you, there's there's no hard and fast rule. You just do it on a case by case basis. And not take take another work I discussed the uh, the Richard Serra House of Cards, which is um, four I think four by four lead plates leaning uh, into propped up to lean into each other to form a cube an, an, an open topped cube and this is probably about the most abstract you can possibly get uh, in a work of sculpture yet I've always found it powerfully evocative because you are so aware of the weight of these sheets of lead of the action of them leaning one against the other the precariousness of the arrangement and that is what he's talking about uh, and and in talking about it, he's making a new kind of sculpture, which is sculpture in real time. It is a it is a work which is sort of continuously in existence. It's not made and then finished and displayed. It, the making and the existence are one and the same. And it's a it's a it's an extraordinary work to me. I think it's one of the great great works in post-war American sculpture. Mm-hmm. Well, there's great theatricality, and I've I've been converted to uh, Sarah as well. Just walking around and seeing the movement of his shapes as they kind of seem to fall onto you or tip back, just as you walk around them, it's an incredible experience. Palpable. It really is. Those those large those large uh, tilting pieces they they are absolutely extraordinary. Slightly vertiginous, but that but then that is the intention. He was very influenced by. The architecture of Borromini in Rome in making those, which I find very interesting. Yeah, and they have great surfaces too. Yes, the way he yes. dealt with that. Yeah. Uh, well, from modernism to anti-art postmodernism, your final chapter concerns Jeff Koons. You describe his retrospective as quote profoundly depressing. The first time I've experienced such a feeling in a lifetime of visiting museums. Real artists take raw materials and transform it. By contrast, Kunz's transformations are mostly sideways moves. It doesn't belong in an art museum. Its proper venue is the sale room, the commercial gallery, a corporate headquarters. You seem to have an equal passion for sculpture from classical to modern. What is it about postmodern production like this that you find so disheartening? Because uh, it is so detached, so calculated, so self-consciously ironic. Um, the, the, the great works of art for me are ones where um, the artist is completely just, in a way, exposing themselves. They're putting themselves out there. Um, it's emotionally honest. Uh, they're holding nothing back. And uh, postmodernism, beginning with Duchamp, but exemplified by Kuhn's, is all about the, the opposite. It's it's being uh, coy and superficial and calculating. And it was this that made this exhibition so depressing for me because it was so. Uh, it, it, it was like it was like someone uh, developing a product line. You know, each successive phase of his career 
you felt didn't involve organically, it was, okay, what needs to come next? And how do we do this? How do we develop this product? How do we roll it out? And, uh, and I, in that essay, I say that, um, that Kuhn's importance is nothing to do with aesthetics or advancing, uh, art in any form. It's that, it's that he's invented a completely new kind of art, and that is an art that is completely impervious to all forms of criticism except that of the marketplace. I mean, you and I and anybody else can say it is meretricious. It's all the things I've just said about it. But that doesn't alter the fact that year in and year out, uh, it's setting auction records. People are vying to acquire it. And, and that is its real artistic identity and artistic life. It is a, it is a, an, an instrument of financial transaction. It is not uh, a work of art in the, in the sense that you and I and listeners to this podcast will understand the term. Well, it has no meaning, I think, outside of the marketplace. Exactly, and it seeks none. I mean, you know, Coons is always ready with uh, a little patter about each of his things, and it's, it's really like Chaunce Gardner in being there. It's just these succession of empty bromides, but they are latched onto by by people and, and as represent as explaining what they what they mean, but uh, the, the, the real meaning, if, if there is any, and this is why I wanted to add this paragraph to my essay for the book that I didn't have room to put in the, in the, the, in the magazine when it ran, is the, the real meaning is technique. You know, the interesting thing, the most interesting thing to me about that Whitney show was that all the labels, many of them anyway, went to great lengths to explain to you just how much effort had gone into making these things. What's, how many man hours, how many assistants had been required, what expensive new techniques had had to be pioneered. And, and it made me realize that in the end, that if there is any meaning at all to these things, that's it. It's technique. It's the mechanics and the processes of making them the finished product is is almost secondary it's this as i say the mechanics and processes you know i thought the age of coons was over in the 1990s and i'm thinking it again now hopefully there won't be a third act well i there i I wouldn't uh, hold your breath. These, these people are these people are like Rasputin. There's no getting rid of them. <laughs> I want to turn back now to monuments and memorials. In your book, you compare two examples, both monuments to World War One, both in London and both from the 1920s: the Cenotaph in Whitehall and the Royal Artillery Memorial at Hyde Park Corner. One is generalized and abstract; the other is representational and specific. Does one approach work better for you than another? Uh, again, I'd say it's case by case. I mean, I, in this case, I contrasted the two because the, um, the, uh, the artillery memorial is, uh, is, uh, has figured a sculpture on it of an exceptionally powerful kind. And I felt 
that it was this uh, and and one of them in particular, which is a a casualty, a recumbent uh, figure, uh, dead on the battlefield, uh, most of his body covered by a greatcoat, uh, that that gave the, the memorial its presence. And again, talking about is that sort of give you a way into a work of art. They they these figures really are your point of entry and and are the emotional keynote of the of the work. The cenotaph I think is profoundly moving in its simplicity um, and 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 its universality because of that. This is a more specific work, the artillery memorial. Um, but but I but but uh, more emotionally powerful in my view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recall I had a conversation with someone who felt that realistic monuments work best. But isn't the Washington Monument, I thought, an abstraction? Is it less effective than the Jefferson or Lincoln memorials? Well, I, 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 you know, it's again, I, I'm not. I don't, there's no one size fits all. I mean, I know mm-hmm. plenty of realistic memorials that are really quite banal. Um, and I know abstract memorials, such as Myelin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial, that's immensely powerful, has, mm-hmm. has all the emotional resonance that, um, the artillery memorial in London does. Um, I think, I think the, the Washington Memorial is, is a wonderful object. It's a wonderful, uh, uh, public monument. It doesn't stir any particular emotions in me though. Um, and it's nothing to do with its being abstract. It's just the nature, the nature of the, of the beast. This well, isn't to say that I want it removed, however. Well, that's, that's some, my next some question. Some people do, I think. That's my next question. Do public monuments even have a place in today's society? There seem to be many people energized by the belief now that any historical commemoration is suspect, if not an abomination. What should be done about this recent wave of iconoclasm? Well, uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult. It's very disheartening. I mean, I was talking to a colleague earlier today about the you know, removal of the Confederate generals in the South. And, and she said, you know, if, um, and, and, and also the renaming of military, the possible renaming of military bases, um, you know, they're named after Confederate generals. And she said, well, you know, if, if, um, if I was a soldier at a uh, military base, you know, named after uh, Heinrich Himmler, you know, I, I would feel uncomfortable about that. And so, you know, I think there are legitimate, um, issues to be addressed. I, I don't think the legitimate way to address them is to, uh, throw a lasso around them and just pull them down randomly. I think these, these processes should be done in an orderly way. Uh, as to the larger issue of commemoration, I've seen that that those ideas expressed in print. And I think actually there's a piece in today's Washington Post. Uh, one of their critics is raising that very question. Why, sh- why should we commemorate anybody or anything? And I, and, and the reason they raise these issues is it's a kind of moral relativism. Uh, you know, if, why should we have a memorial to Dwight Eisenhower on the mall? It, it, he, you know, 
he might not have been a 1,000% nice person. Well, that isn't the issue. It's what did this person do in their life uh, to benefit the country or humanity? I, I think I think societies need memorials. They need uh, they need uh, to have their past commemorated so they don't forget it. I think they want emblems, symbols to rally around. Um, I think they're, they, they serve those important functions and, and when done well, they are pleasant to look at. Uh, so those are all three reasons I think, uh, memorialization should continue. Um, but we're, it's, it's a very highly charged period we're in right now and I don't see any, any short exit from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it seems to me that, you know, like the erasing of language, it's an erasing of history, good, bad, and ugly. And that's a scary thing. It's, a, it's an antagonism towards history itself. Well, it is. And, and, you know, one of the most interesting monuments in all of Washington to me, um, and nobody's – I've never seen this one talked about. It's quite near Union Station, but it's a um, – I'm not sure memorial is the right word, but it's a a public artwork that um, uh, again commemorates is the wrong word that publicly acknowledges the internment of the Japanese during World War II and effectively publicly apologizes for it. And the first time I ever saw this a few years ago, I was absolutely stunned. Um, and really very proud because I thought this is it, 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 this is the only country that would put up a monument, um, you know, publicly apologizing for a dark episode in its history. And and I think that monument is just as important as any of the commemorative ones we have. And for the reason you say you say is they help us remember our history and we we must never be allowed to forget our history and we must never make people forget their history well this iconoclasm is just one of today's cultural challenges another is covid and the shuttering of cultural institutions first i want to ask what will happen to the museum the theater the concert hall when this is all over is it back to business or have the fault lines caused lasting damage well, it's, uh, it, it, it's, I, I keep describing it to people as an asteroid strike, sudden and devastating. Um, there's, there's no short way back. Um, yes, the museums will reopen, but the performing arts spaces have a much tougher, uh, way to go for two reasons. Number one, uh, all the surveys I've read more than 50% of the people polled say, yes, I want to go back to the theater, to the opera, to the concert, but not for six months or more after they reopen, not until there's a vaccine. There are all these, all these caveats. So even after they reopen, there's not going to be a stampede back there. The other issue is that social distancing means it's going to be virtually impossible for them to make any money. Um, 
I, some guy did a back of the envelope calculation using Boston Symphony Hall as the model, and his conclusion was that the only way to uh, reopen with social distancing compliance would be to eliminate 75% of the seats. So you do that, and you have two choices. You either have to cut your organization to the bone so you can uh, operate on the reduced revenue, or you have to cripple the ticket prices for the remaining 25% to try to make up for the lost revenue, which, which means you'll never fill the hall. So there are huge uh, financial challenges facing these people that, that are not going to be not going to be solved anytime soon. I don't think there's going to be anything resembling a return to normal, if we can even speak of that, um, in in the art world until the second half of next year. Oh, gosh. Terrible thought. Right. We're still in the middle of this. Yeah. I mean, uh, there, there was an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer last weekend, <laughs> the Kimmel Center, which is sort of Philadelphia's Lincoln Center, but it does things like it, it relies – a great deal of its income on traveling Broadway shows, and they've canceled their season for the rest of the year like everybody else has. But the person who runs it was quoted as saying, how can we even be sure we'll have traveling Broadway shows back next January? You know, Mm -hmm. it's just one question mark after another. Well, part two of my question is we are both – Editing remotely for a remote world. I'm an editor at a monthly publication. You have a daily to deal with. For my reviewers, this is meant to turn into those thought pieces we have been long thinking about. But how do you confront the challenge of coverage when next to nothing is open and you have a page every day to fill? Well, that's uh, that's been the $64,000 question <laughs> the last three months. Uh, I mean, if I... If I had to write about it, the headline I'd put on it would be, how do you cover the arts when there are no arts to cover? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were we were taken by surprise, just like everybody else. I mean, by the end of February, I thought, you know, it looked as though certainly there would be some travel limitation and, and things were getting kind of hairy. So I sent a letter out to, you know, most of our contributors are freelancers. So I sent a letter out saying, look, anybody who doesn't want to travel, you know, you don't have to fulfill your assignment. It's, you know, we'll make other arrangements. And I was sort of refocusing our coverage on New York institutions rather than national ones. And then it was getting a little trickier early March. And then the, the second week in March, the week of the ninth, um, Terry Teachat, our drama critic, has a biweekly cultural column called Sightings. And he emailed me either at the beginning of that week or the end of the week before saying that for his sightings column the week of March 9th, he wanted to write a column saying, if Broadway theater has to shut down, this is what they should do to keep uh, uh, performances going and keep audiences engaged, and that is do streaming performances. I said, Terry, that's a great idea because, you know, with a with a column like that, you like to – most of the time you're commenting on what's already happened. But when possible, I like us to look around corners and sort of say, well, this might happen, and if it does, you know, here's what we ought to say or what ought to happen. So I gave Terry the green light for that. 
He filed it the morning of the 12th, Thursday. Mm-hmm. We edited it. We put it online late afternoon. Within 15 or 20 minutes of it going online, Governor Cuomo shut down Broadway. He said no theater with more than 500 people, with 500 people or more, <coughs> can stay open. So it shut down Broadway. So we had to pull his column back, get him to rewrite the lead from if Governor Cuomo does this to now that Governor Cuomo has done this. Mm-hmm. And then at the, it might have actually been the Wednesday. Uh, it was either Wednesday or the Thursday. The next day, whichever day it was, um, the cascade began. The Met announces it's closing. Lincoln Center announces it's closing. It was it was dominoes all across the country. So we were functionally out of business at that point because I'm in charge of reviews. We had nothing to review. So I, that week I had talked to my two colleagues, and, and we had decided that the way forward was to focus, since everyone was going to be staying at home, to focus on what arts and culture fair they could uh, stream on their home computers so it was a very broad brush idea like that, and I had to figure out how well how we make this work. So I spent the, that weekend, the weekend of the 14th, drafting an email to all my writers, telling them this idea, but saying, "Look, we've got to make this interesting. I don't want a bunch of listicles, you know, ten best documentaries about X." Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, "Blue sky and be creative. Let's use our imaginations. Start by playing off the news and." I'd gotten in touch with Michael Lewis, who writes for the new Criterion, and he's our architecture critic. And because I, we needed copy. I had to, I had to get some stuff in the pipeline really fast. Yeah. So I, I explained my idea to Michael, and I said, Michael, here's an idea for you. You remember a few weeks ago there, it's that whole dust up about the Trump White House wanting to make classical architecture the official language of the government and there was the brouhaha about that. I said, um, you know, I think probably, and, you know, I'm kind of grasping at straws now. I said, I have a feeling that the term classical architecture doesn't mean a lot to most people. So give me, we call these things the staying inside guide. I said, give me a staying inside guide of, um, you know, a guide to the half dozen best films, videos, YouTube pieces that explain classical architecture to people. And he did it, and it was a, it was a great column. It included a, a link to a, uh, a spoof a TV comedy show about a, about a modern architect that was, uh, was, was absolutely spot-on parody. And it was a huge success, and it was a great help to me because I sent it out to all our writers. I said, this is the kind of thing I have in mind. And we were off and running, and I was commissioning those as quickly as I could. We run a couple a week now. Um, in addition to that, we've been – there's, as you can imagine, been a fairly creative approach to things like music making and dance and even painting Um in the lockdown. And so, for example, in today's paper, we have a wonderful column by Karen Wilkin on uh, the, uh, this group of painters who are pa- painting portraits of each other, uh, FaceTime portraits, and they they 
sit and look at each other and they pay and they exchange. Uh, and so we, we, we made that part of our coverage to how are the performing artists in general and filmmakers uh, adapting to the creative limitations imposed by the lockdown. Um, we're also a third prong of our coverage is we're, we're, we're covering this asteroid strike very closely. I've had a number of columns exploring aspects of it. Uh, the first one was by Adrian Ellis, an arts consultant who really set out the parameters of this disaster, uh, making points such, such as uh, the average symphony orchestra has two weeks cash on hand. So they're done for. Um, and, and the other thing I did, which I thought was, was very important was, uh, the, the first Saturday, that Saturday the 14th, our masterpiece column. And, you know, every Saturday we run this column called Masterpiece where a, a writer focuses on a single work, whether it's a painting, a piece of music, whatever. And, uh, someone pitched a masterpiece column on Camus the Plague, which I thought was Timely, so we ran that on Saturday the 14th. But then I thought, you know, people, they're getting this stuff 24-7 from the news media. They don't want to be, they, they, we should give them an escape from, you know, plague, pandemic, all of this. And so I decided that, well, we should, as much as possible in our coverage, speak to the moment. Um, I, I wanted to do so obliquely rather than Head on. So, for example, the masterpiece we ran a week or two after that, someone pitched me, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, and he said, you know, this is often, uh, you know, talked about as a murder mystery, but he said in the current climate, I think it would be interesting to discuss it as, uh, you know, how does somebody respond to the accumulated boredom of, of, being, you know, quarantined for a long right. period of time. Mm -hmm. So, so that's what we've been trying to do. We've been trying to, to, uh, as I say, uh, uh, you know, speak to the moment as much as possible because, you know, this is the world we're in. This is on everybody's mind, but in a way that at the same time is diverting and gives people a kind of escape from ours that they're being, you know, getting having to get elsewhere in the media yeah well it's creativity hopefully out of crisis and the, the crisis is not uh not going away anytime soon unfortunately no unfortunately not yeah you have been listening to the new criterion remote edition i'm james panero executive editor my guest today has been eric gibson arts interview editor of the wall street journal a longtime contributor to our pages and the author of The Necessity of Sculpture, Selected Essays and Criticism, 1985 to 2019, just out from Criterion Books. Listeners, be sure to add this book to your summer reading list. We may be remote, but it'll take you up close and personal with the great works of sculpture as seen through the eyes of a lifetime connoisseur and critic. Eric, thank you for joining us, and congratulations on the publication. Thanks so much, James. This is a lot of fun.